Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Good morning, everyone. Oh, I am not TJ, if you haven't noticed. Um, we're going to take a second here and pray for Allie and TJ. They're heading up to Iowa this morning. Allie's grandmother passed away this last week, and so they knew that was probably close, and so I was scheduled to preach this week, and it also looks like uh, I'll be taking next week as well as we start Advent, just to kind of give you guys a little bit of a roadmap here. We will be continuing on in our series of Hebrews uh, today. We'll be finishing up chapter four, and then we're going to take a hiatus from the book as we celebrate Advent, and we'll have a series of messages. You'll get to hear a few different voices speak uh, in that series, which is always a pleasure. Um, but just so you guys have that information, so you're not taken off guard, Advent will begin next week, which is always exciting, right? I mean, this is it. Jesus is coming. How cool, right? Let's take time and let's pray for our pastor's family. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Allie and we thank you for TJ. God, I pray that you would just provide comfort for them, Lord. God, I know that Allie is mourning. Father, I pray that they um, have the space to do that properly and to do that well, God. This body would love them well and that we would reach out to them in their time of, of sorrow, Lord Jesus. And that we would be able to provide them with comfort. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Like I said, this week we're going to continue in Hebrews, and last week we talked through how Jesus put us at rest with God, that we were in fact enemies of God, that we were separated from God, and that Jesus puts us at rest with him. Now that message would have been a humongous relief to the Jews to whom this letter was being written. If you remember, this letter is written to Jews, we've said this over and over, who believed and accepted the message that Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God, that he is the sacrifice, that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for their whole life. They believed that. Now things are getting tough, and many of them are wanting to run and turn away, and it's not hard to see why. They're under much persecution, and they're asking the question, is Jesus really necessary? Couldn't we go back to just worshiping the Jews, or worshiping the way that the Jews had worshiped forever and ever before that? Isn't it the same God after all? Is Jesus really necessary? That's the question that's being asked. And of course, the author of this letter is saying, yes, uh, he is necessary. And as a matter of fact, there is no other way. The old way was never really truly the way. Jesus was always the way. That was a temporary arrangement with God. And now that Jesus, the Son, has appeared, there is a new covenant that God has made with us, and it is the only way. Now, with that background and that context, let's go ahead and dive into our text for this week, which is Hebrews 4, or Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. You'll see them up on the screen. 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let's go back into that context just a little bit here. The Jews would have all known what a great high priest was. Now, TJ spent a long time talking about high priests, and I just said great high priest. They actually don't know what a great high priest is. They know what a high priest is. A high priest was the priest who would be able to enter into the holiest of holies. He could make the sacrifice. He could go in. They would literally tie a rope around his foot, by the way, because if he died in there, they'd have to drag him out. That's how, if he ever went in unclean, if he ever went in ceremonially unclean, or um, if he ever went in um, in an unrighteous or unfinning manner, he would literally die in the holy of holy places. But once a year, he could go in and he could make sacrifices on behalf of the people in there. Okay? So they were very familiar with what a high priest was. He was a human. Uh, He was a sinner. He was guilty of sin, just like the rest of the Jews for whom he was offering sacrifices on behalf of. He did make sacrifices. He would also one day die. Priests didn't live forever. And even though they spoke of heaven... And they spoke of the God in heaven. They didn't come from heaven, and they certainly weren't going to go there, um, at least not yet, uh, after they died. And um, when they died, they stayed dead. They stayed buried in the ground, just like all humans do. So this was their context for a high priest. Jesus was not as they would have imagined it, a high priest. He wasn't from the right lineage. He, he didn't perform the, the rituals and the duties of a high priest. He didn't have that title or that honor, or he wasn't elected to that position. He was not, strictly speaking, at least the way they would have understood it, a high priest. So hearing these words, we have a great high priest or a high priest, and then referring to Jesus would have been quite a shock to them. That would have been even probably a bit confusing to them. And of course, the author is not trying to confuse them. He's trying to say Jesus is a sort of high priest, a type. And as a matter of fact, he even, he even adjusts the type of high priest by offering up an adjective at the beginning of that, which is great high priest, a great high priest. Now, great high priest doesn't just mean bigger better, badder. That's not what that means, right? He's not just a bigger type of version of these high priests. Really what was meant by that word was altogether different, unique, a different sort, a different type of high priest. He was greater and unique. So we're going to dive into the text here just a little bit closer, and I want you to throw verse 14 back up on the screen there, if you would, so we can study that just a little bit deeper. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast 
our confession. Let's just camp here for a moment. Some will argue, and at this point, quite frankly, theologically, they were still trying to figure it out, but some will argue that Jesus is not God. And that argument usually hinges on the true uh, fact that in the scriptures, Jesus never explicitly comes out and says, hey, y'all, I'm God. Okay, you're not going to find that in the scriptures. He doesn't do that. That's bothersome to some people, and many people in our culture today and back then would have been very, are very skeptical and would have been very skeptical of this whole Jesus being divine uh, concept. But what's interesting to me is everyone who followed him, everyone who followed him and stuck by him seemed to come to the conclusion that he was God. As a matter of fact, they wrote it down and they told us. See, while Jesus himself never says the words, I am God, it does say Jesus is God several times throughout the epistles. And Jesus unmistakably alludes to himself as God. And I think the reason that all his followers came to that conclusion was because he intended for them to come to that conclusion. As a matter of fact, in the Gospels, whenever he's teaching about himself, especially in like John 6 through 8, and his disciples say to him things like, where else will we go? You're, you're the Holy One of God. That's who you are, right? You are the Messiah. You are God in the flesh, right? Jesus wouldn't say to them, oh, no, 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 no. Let, let, me, let me correct you. You got that wrong. He would say to them, hey, blessed are you. My Father has opened your eyes, right? Jesus does call himself God, right? He does. So, so this whole thought, this whole idea that Jesus doesn't call himself God, it, it just simply doesn't hold up. The, the, I was blessed this past week. I, I've been listening to my audio Bible just a little bit in the background, and I, I like doing that. I'm one of those people that I can listen to a podcast and work at the same time. Some people can't do that. Some people are like, how do you focus? I don't know. I just can. All right, so a lot of times I will like listening to the scriptures in the background, and sometimes I'll take a break and listen to them just a little bit deeper, especially whenever I get to something that's really hitting. And I was blessed this past week to be listening to the book of John, and I came through chapters 6 through 8, and I listened to that whole exchange throughout all those chapters in one sitting, not stopping and parsing each verse, which sometimes, to be quite frank, can be a little bit to our detriment. Sometimes we need to see the whole picture, or else we get so laser-focused that we miss the whole thing. And so I was blessed enough to hear chapters 6 through 8, uninterrupted, just straight through, and I was blown away at how clear it was when Jesus gets to the end of chapter 8 in context of the rest of that conversation, whenever he finally, after being quizzed and asked from everything, every side of it, he comes to me and says, hey, look, before Abraham was, I am. It's unmistakable. Jesus is saying, I am God. Now, you might be saying, okay, Clayton, you just went from high, great high priest. Now you're talking about Jesus being God. How did you make that jump? Let me, let me just fill in the gaps for you here. The great high priest was not something that existed. That wasn't a title. There was no concept for a one-time 
forever and all sacrifice. Such a sacrifice would have to be truly perfect, would have to be truly without blemish. Humans simply can't do that. We are all sinners. That was common knowledge then, and it's common knowledge now if we're willing to accept it. Something else had to be on the table, on the altar. Something perfect. God himself. This is important for us to realize that whenever we say, let us hold fast to our confession here at the end of this, that's what we're confessing, that Jesus is the Son of God and that his sacrifice of himself on behalf of all mankind is the very basis of our faith. God giving himself in place of us. That's the confession. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, laid down his life, his perfect life for us. It was God sacrificing himself on our behalf. Jesus Christ is God. So, can we leave Jesus now that things are getting hard? This question that the Hebrews are asking. No. No, not if you want to be justified with God and not if you want to uh, enjoy peace with God. That's, that's, the quite, that's the answer here. So verse 14 we see, Jesus is God, there's no other way. That's the confession we hold to. Now that is good theology, that's strong theology, that is able to save your soul. But it's not incredibly helpful whenever you're going through hard times necessarily. Right? And it's also a little bit simple. Jesus was God, and, and there had been other human beings come that claimed to be God, but Jesus didn't claim to just be God, and nor does Christianity teach that Jesus was just God. As a matter of fact, as we go on to verse 14, the author dives into something a little bit more curious for us. So let's go to verse 15, and let's check that out. For we do not have a high priest. It's interesting here. It, it, it goes from great high priest now to high priest, and I think I know why. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, here the author goes, we have a great high priest, and now we have a high priest, same person, same thing. But here the author is revealing to the humanity of Jesus. Did you catch that? Verse 14, speaking in very high language. We have this great high priest who passed through the heavens, right? He came down from heaven. He went up through heaven, right? We have this great high priest that is God. But we also have this high priest who is the same person who is like you and me. And he's able to sympathize with us. He was God and he was man he was the God-man. 
I know that that phrase sometimes can feel a little bit juvenile. As a matter of fact, <laughs> not to be irreverent, but it's hard for me not to imagine him as like some superhero, like God man, na, 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 na. you know, like, like whenever we say that phrase, the God man, it sounds a little bit kid-like. And uh, even, even as I said, that, even as I was preaching this to Amanda, like I do every time before I actually give you guys a sermon, she was like, is there, is there a better phrase? <laughs> and I started to try to think of him like, no, there's really not. There's really not because Jesus was 100% God. He was 100% man. Both of those things are 100% true. And yet whenever you combine 100% God with 100% man, you get something unique that we don't have a word for other than God-man. Can you think of a better word? I really can't, right? So I wish I could because it sounds, like I said, just a little bit childish, but it's good. It's, it's the only word I can come up with. He is the God-man. Now, our temptation here is to say, yeah, but. So, so he, was, he was a man, but, but, but kind of like Superman, right? Like um, he had... He had these abilities that you and I just don't have because he was God. Well, that's simply not what the scriptures say. I find it fitting that the author here doesn't focus on Jesus' physical attributes here. He doesn't say like, yeah, you know, Jesus was, was a man like you and me because he liked hunger and he, and he thirst and he, and he got tired and probably got like colds and got sick and things like that. We know he felt pain. You know, like the... The, the scriptures aren't, the author of Hebrews doesn't focus on that part of Jesus' humanity. The, actually, the part that he focuses on Jesus' humanity, which I think is even a little bit more confusing, is the weakness of desire. Now, you might say that sounds close to heresy. What do you mean, weakness of desire? What I mean was he was tempted in every way that we were, yet remained sinless. So when I say the weakness of his desires, I mean his fleshly desires, he was prone to those like you and I. That might be hard for you to believe, but it's what the scriptures say. In James, we're told that we are tempted whenever we are drug away by our, what? Evil desires. At the same time, we're told that God cannot be tempted. So that seems really confusing. What do you make of that? Well, here's what I make of that. There is an unbelievable mystery behind the theology of the hypostatic union. Yes, that's a big word. It's early in the morning. It's after Thanksgiving. Turkey's still wearing off. Not sure we can handle the word hypostatic union, but we're going to try it anyways. Hypostatic union. This is a theological term that simply means the joining of the divine and the human in the person of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else like it that exists in nature or eternity for that matter. It is something that we cannot wrap our minds fully around. It is one of the greatest mysteries we have a high priest who because of his nature as man 
is able to understand the actual pull of temptation and actually be tempted in every way that we were, not as an outsider, but as one of us. And we also have a great high priest who, because of his nature and essence of God, is able to do what mankind cannot, which is to actually overcome that temptation perfectly his whole life without ever failing to it once. This is a great mystery because we cannot tell you how it works. His divine essence is as different as you and I are from dogs. If I were a dog, I would have the desire to return to my own vomit. Sorry for the crude illustration, but I actually think it's fitting. As a human, I have no desire to return to my own vomit. God, as a man, is prone to the same weaknesses as you and I are. God as God is above them. And here we have the God-man. Like us in every way, in the sense that he felt actual temptation, but still remained God. Now for some of you, me not being able to explain how exactly that works is a problem. Because I didn't really tell you how it worked just now. All I described to you was the what. I didn't tell you the how. The last church I was at was pastored by a man that I just adore. His name's Jamie. He's like a father in the faith to me. And I remember early on when we were talking, um, and I was dealing with some really big questions and just really trying to figure out, how does this work? How does that work? How does that work? And he, he told me, he said, you know, Clayton, I think one of the biggest mistakes I made as a young pastor was... I felt like if I couldn't explain to people how things worked, that I would look like a fool. And then worse off, that maybe I was a fool. He said, I, I wish that I would have been more okay with mystery. And I'm just going to submit to you guys, not that we should just accept things blindly and not use our brains. God did make us intellectual creatures. But I'm going to submit to you guys that sometimes that's what faith looks like, accepting the what without knowing the how. Matter of fact, a lot of times that's what faith looks like. I can't explain to you how Jesus could be 100% God and 100% man. And if you want the Bible to explain that to you, I'm afraid, quite frankly, you're going to be disappointed because it doesn't have much to offer. It doesn't tell us how. It just tells us what. This is what we know. He was God. He was man. How does that work? I don't know. And the only reason I can think of that God wouldn't tell us is because it was probably just too big for us to fathom or it just wasn't that important. But God didn't see fit to tell us through Scripture. Theology might offer you up some thoughts. Those are good. You should look at those. You should consider those. But if you're looking at the scriptures to tell you how this works, you might be disappointed. That shouldn't be a reason for not believing it. There shouldn't be a reason for not accepting it. Because there's enough evidence out there in my life, at least, to tell me that it's absolutely true. 
You know, Jesus says back in John 6 and 7 and 8, look, if I testify about myself, then it, it doesn't mean anything. But if somebody else testifies about me, then it does. He has not only all of his disciples and all these other people testifying about what they saw and what they experienced, but then he also has this other thing that you and I know is the Holy Spirit who has come and testified in our hearts that this is true. 100%. And so Jesus not saying it about himself is almost better because no one likes it when someone brags about themselves. It's always better whenever... You can come to the truth and the conclusion on your own or through other witnesses, other people testifying about it to say it's true. This great mystery of how this works is something that we come to accept by faith. But why does it matter? Why does the author of Hebrews remind the reader of this mysterious truth? Well, I can think of two reasons, and I think these two reasons were applicable not only for the Hebrews, but for us today. And I think this is the crux of the message. I believe it's so that we do not turn back and so that we do not hold back. Okay, so if I had to sum up this entire message for you today in one sentence, here's what it would be. Jesus is God. Jesus is man, so don't hold back and don't turn back, okay? Jesus is God and Jesus is man, so do not turn back and do not hold back. Let me tease that out just a little bit here. I've talked a lot about John 16, um, or sorry, John 6 through 8. You might be going, well, why didn't you just preach from that text? Maybe I should have. I don't know. But I talked, I've talked a lot about it. I'm going to talk about it here just a little bit more. After Jesus declared that in order to gain eternal life, you must eat the bread of heaven, he then went on to talk about himself as the bread of heaven and that one must eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to gain eternal life. And he also said that God would draw those to him who could understand this teaching. Well, many of those who'd been following him left after this, but the 12 remained, and he asked if they were going to leave too. And Peter, who was never seemingly for a loss of words, looks at him and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Well, back in verse 14 of Hebrews here, we're exhorted to hold fast to our confession. And I think I would just simply ask the same question that Peter asks, which is, if he is God, where else can you go? If you're thinking of turning away, if you're thinking of turning back because it's hard, or if you're being bombarded by all of these messages and you're wondering, is Jesus really necessary for me to be made right with God? The answer I would give to you is, if you believe Jesus' testimony about himself, if you believe his apostles' testimony about him, and if you believe the Holy Spirit's testimony about him, then he is God. And then I would simply ask you, where else can you go? Or maybe we should ask it this way. What if Jesus was only a man? What if Jesus isn't God? What if he's only a man? Well, if he's merely a man, 
then should I really concern myself with what he thinks about what's sinful or not? Should I care? If, if Jesus is merely a man, then what reason would I have to think that he's any more able to make me right with God than any other man? If Jesus is just a man, then, then I would answer to you that uh, you, you, you shouldn't follow him. If he's just a man, there's no reason for you to. I don't see any. If he's just a man, then honestly, he's no different than any other prophet from any other of the world religions out there. But if he's God, if that's true, and all of Christianity teaches that he is, then it makes all the difference in the world. So don't turn back from him. Where else would you go? Back to your old religion where you were dead in sin? Back to the time before you accepted Jesus as, as Lord and Savior? To some other promise of some other religion by men who are dead and in the ground? We have a we have a we have the only as far as I know, we have the only one who died and came back. As far as I know, we have the only great teacher, great prophet, whatever you want to call him, if you're just talking about him in, in human terms, that died and came back and claimed to be God and went to heaven. If that's true, then where else can you go? So let us hold fast to our confession that Jesus is God and therefore is worthy of being our Lord. And then what I would say is, let's not hold back from him either. As is usually the case, I forgot to prepare a call to worship until like the last minute this morning. And I'm sitting up there and I'm typing in my messages, my, my sermon notes and stuff into the thing up there, uh, really just the text. And I'm like, all right, great, I got the text in, we're good to go. And Garrett comes back, he says, hey, do we have a call to worship? That's like five minutes till the service because, oh, no, forgot that. So, I pulled out Psalm 139 because I think it illustrates this next point better than any other passage in the Bible. Psalm 139, we see David before the Lord bearing his entire soul. And he makes some really great arguments. He's like, hey, look, what am I going to do anyways? Even the dark is light to you. Where could I run that you wouldn't find me and know me? You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You, you know me and everything about me. Where could I run anyway? So I might as well just tell you what's on my, my heart and on my soul. And then he goes into this rampage about how he hates these people and all these other things. Honestly, it's not even very godly stuff that he's saying. It's things that if you really read it, you go, is that really the heart of God? That's kind of cringy that he's saying that to God. Is he allowed to say that to God? I don't know that he's allowed to say that to God. And then at the end of it, he ends with, now search my soul, O Lord, and tell me where there is any wicked way in me. He knows that it's probably not spot on. And he's asking God to, to search him. But he's also not hiding it. And the reason why you don't have to either is because we have a high priest who lived amongst us and knows 
our temptations, knows our trials. He is relatable. If we look back to verse 15 there, he is relatable. Let's go on to verse 16 of Hebrews. If you can go back to that text, I want to show that here. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The fact that Jesus is both God and man should give us confidence. He became man, and because of this fact, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses and not scoff at us. He was tempted and tried just like you and I were, so he gets it. Now, if you look at this passage here, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. With confidence. We can draw near with confidence for two reasons. One... As TJ taught about last week, we're at peace with God. We're at rest with him. We're his son. We have been given the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. The other reason we can draw near to him with confidence is because we understand that he gets us. If Jesus is only God, I asked earlier, what if Jesus was only man? If Jesus is only God, and he's walking around here on earth, unlike any of the rest of us, unable to feel the pull of temptation, then I can't have any confidence that he actually understands me. I know I can think he's omniscient and all these other things. But does he really know what it's like to be tempted? As a matter of fact, James says God can't be tempted. And I would say that's true. God the Father, in God the Father's state, not as God and man, can't be tempted. But God-man can be tempted. And so now when I go to Jesus, I know that he knows what it's like. And so I can with confidence speak freely to him. And really that's what that word confidence means. I did a little bit of a word study on that word confidence because some translations say boldly and, and these other words and some things that almost sound irreverent, like you would be approaching God in an irreverent manner. And I'm like, that seems, I wonder if that's, like, is that really what it's getting at here? Uh, not really. So, so the word confidence here is, is uh, I did some word study, I did some etymology on it and kind of looked back. It, it seems to be referring to this thing, this, this concept, this idea that, that first kind of seemed to originate in Athens. All right, and the Athenians kind of had this, uh, this, freedom of speech idea long before America ever existed. And it was this idea that, that they had the right to their own opinion and to be able to say it freely and to speak their ideas openly and freely. And that's really what this is, is, is referring to, is this idea that you, are, you have the ability to speak frankly, to speak openly, to speak freely to, in this case, God. Or whatever else. And so that's, that, is, uh, that is the idea here, is that we can speak freely and boldly, albeit reverently, with God. And we can know that he understands us because he's been there and he's done it. He was tried. He was tempted. You know, it's sometimes hard to imagine that. 
But he was. He was. So what does this look like? Well, I mean, everybody's tempted by different things, right? We all know that. There's some that are maybe common to all of us or most of us. But we're all tempted by different things. Something that may be a really big struggle for Cody may not be that big of a struggle for me. Maybe for Emma. Maybe for Katie. Maybe for Brandon. But not for Garrett. But Garrett probably has something going on in his heart that just seems to tug at him more than it does Megan's or more than it does Amy's. You get it. We all struggle with different things. But it says here that Jesus was tempted in every way. He knows what you are going through. So when you see an advertisement with an overly sexualized person on it, be it male or female, and that tempts you to lust and commit adultery in your mind, you can run to Jesus through prayer who saw prostitutes, women on the street, and guess what? Hard to imagine, but he was tempted to commit adultery in his mind and in his body with those women. If he wasn't, then the Bible's a liar. And I don't think the Bible's a liar. You can run to that God, man, in prayer and ask for mercy and grace to overcome temptation. And the reason you can ask him to overcome temptation is because he overcame temptation. You know, when I go to people at work asking them for help with something I've never done before or have tried and failed at doing, I go to the people who have succeeded in doing it. I don't go to the other people who failed at doing it. I go to people who I say, well, I know they figured it out. They got it done. And I go to them and I ask them how to do it. We all get that. We like to go to the person who has the experience and not the experience at failing, but the experience at succeeding, at doing the thing. And we can do that. With Jesus, we have that open invitation. So when you have a chance to uh, withhold tax information on your taxes and cheat, and you're starting to justify it in your head, well, I mean, my, we need this little amount of money that we've set aside for this, and, you know, how's our family going to eat, and inflation, and all these other things, and you, you have that, that opportunity to just kind of maybe tuck that, that, that income that you had away over here. The government doesn't need to know about that, right? You, you, guess what? Jesus lived and walked and had to eat and pay for food and all these other things, and he also had to pay taxes. He was a citizen, just like you and me. And he knew it was wrong to steal. And he was probably tempted from time to time to do it anyway. And he overcame it. And you can pray to him. And you can say, God, I'm being tempted. Help me. And he will. And he will. And he's also not going to laugh at you over the temptation. He's also not going to say to you, I can't believe you're just so weak that you'd even be tempted by that. Because A, he's a good and kind God. B, he's been there before and he knows how real the pool is. This is great news, guys. We have a God who gets us. He's not some distant, far-off God that we can't relate to and that can't relate to us. This is the beauty of the hypostatic union. This is the exciting part about the fact that he was both God and man, regardless of how it works. He was like you and me in every way except for he won, where we lost. But he won so big 
that he was able to make us winners too. That's how big he won by. It's just mind-blowing. It's not even fathomable. So when you're annoyed with your family, your friends, post on Facebook, and you just want to light them up, you want to start gossiping about them to other people, or you just are so frustrated with them, you just want to tear into them. Jesus had people who were really foolish and annoying around him too. They said stupid things. They maligned him in public. And he didn't return the favor. So you can run to him in those moments as well. And you can ask for grace to overcome temptation. And I've only mentioned a few scenarios here. No matter what scenario you can imagine, he's faced it. And he won. And he can teach you and help you win too. He is full of mercy and grace and understanding. So do not turn back and do not hold back from him. Take everything to him, the dirtiest things and the smallest things, the biggest things and the lightest things. Just take them to him because he can and is able and will help you in your time of need. That is the beautiful promise of this passage. And I hope that you will take it to heart and that I will take it to heart and that we will be, we will be quick. The band's going to come back up. And here's how we're going to end today. Jesus invites us to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. Through him and him alone can we receive the mercy and grace of the Father that will both justify us and sanctify us. So as we take communion today, perhaps you're in the midst of some sort of temptation and you need to run to him and receive the mercy and grace to overcome that temptation. And now's the perfect time to do that. I'm going to make the steps of the stage available today. I know that's not something we do very often around here. But we're going to do it today. Okay? Garrett and the band, they're going to play some songs. And maybe they're kind of feeling out the room a little bit. And they feel like we just need a little bit of time to not sing. Maybe they'll just play some music for us and give us some time to do that. But the steps are available today. If you want to pray and do business in your seat, if you want to come up here and ask for prayer, I'm going to ask Blake just to be available. He's one of the elders of the church here, just to be available to pray with you. I'll be available to pray with you. If you need prayer for something or if you just want to do business with God, I would ask you to do that as we take communion today. Temptation's hard. We all face it. We've got a wonderfully big God who is able to overcome and also who gets it and wants to help you and will help you if you ask. Don't be surprised if you're praying if another brother or sister who loves you comes and lays a hand on you to pray beside you. We like doing that around here. And I hope that doesn't make you uncomfortable. The table's open. And Jesus is inviting you. So I'd like you to consider Jesus' words as we move into our time of worship and communion and prayer. And these are concatenated from a couple verses from John 6 here. But I'd like for these verses just to sit with you for a minute. Think what Jesus says here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I, Jesus, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Today we take the elements. These are representations of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And his promise is that whoever eats of his body and drinks of his blood shall not perish but have eternal life. That eternal life starts now, not just after you die. We have a good God who wants us now, wants to know us now, wants to commune with us now. He's beckoning you. He's calling you. Come, take, eat, believe, and live. Like I said, if you need prayer for anything, we'd love to make that available to you today as well.